everyone. You are listening to the eighth episode of It's Always Saturn, the podcast from Raven Rabbit Ram. I am so delighted to be reporting to you today, Wednesday, November 9th, in a world where sociopath Doug Mastriano is not the future governor of Pennsylvania. So thank you to all those who voted. Um, very, very excited not to have to be quite so worried about the future of reproductive health care and feeling a little more at ease about what will be taught to my children in their public schools. However, that does not mean that we don't have a lot of battles left to fight, which is why I'm excited that today's episode is with poet Emily Murtoff, who is just a feminist powerhouse. If you have the chance to see her read locally, please do. She's an amazing reader. And her poems just really, they just kill it, man. She's really good. She and I have talked about working on a future project together around the topic of bodily autonomy, reproductive rights, and healthcare. If that's something that interests you, please feel free to check out the Empathy for Choice page on the Raven Rabbit Ram website. We would love to hear more stories about all kinds of folks' experience when it comes to bodily autonomy. Emily has a house show coming up this Friday, November 11th. If you are in the area, check it out. There will be featured performers followed by an open mic, and that open mic is for all types of art. So if you're a musician, if you're a comedian, if you're a poet, come check it out. Or if you just want to watch, I think she'll have a great lineup and you'll meet some really cool people. So good times all around. She mentions her address in the podcast, so stay tuned for that. If you don't have time or you miss it while you're listening to the episode, you can find her on Facebook, Instagram, etc. Look for Emily T. Murtoff. She's also the Brick Chick. If you want to check out her masonry work on Instagram, you can find her out there on the streets every Thursday, co-hosting with Amy Trout, the Black listed poets of Harrisburg at HMAC. Super cool event, a great place to get out and exercise your work, exercise your demons, do whatever you got to do every Thursday. We also mentioned that Emily is hosting a reading January 13th, so mark that in your calendars for later in, well not later in the year, mark that in your calendars for one of the first things you do next year, see some poetry, get your year off to a great start, elementary coffee. January 13th. We talk a lot about publishing. We talk a lot about revision. We talk a lot about all, all the good stuff. Religion. Religion and revision. That would be the alternate title for this podcast, I think. So enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. I'm myself. I'm going to go maybe get some work done. Maybe watch some garbage. Some Love is Blind on Netflix. Just enjoy the beautiful sunny day. Blue sky and... Uh, Blue, blue Pennsylvania. I'm Christina Langell, and it is always Saturn. So how's it going? So good. Yeah. How are you? Good. I'm good. I was watching the final cut of the film that we made for VidJam. So that's what I was. (laughs) I was actually in a VidJam film this year, too. I was going to ask you. Yeah. Tyler and their friend Al did one. It was 
I don't act. And like, I told them that I was like, I would love to be there for script writing or editing or whatever. And Tyler just kept saying like, I want to put you on film. I want to put you on film. And finally I was like, okay, fine. Like I'll try it. And had like a larger acting role than I expected, but enjoyed it so much. (laughs) Yeah. I saw you on Instagram with a severed arm and I was like, this must Mm -hmm. be for vid jam. (laughs) Yep. I acted a little bit in ours. Technically, I guess like my character was pretty central to the plot, but most of the shooting did not involve me, which was nice. Oh, cool. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. I, the weirdest part of that experience was like, we okay when we came in I was very pleased to hear that our characters were all drugged or like hypnotized of some sort so like yeah you all just have to act a little bit out of it the whole time I was like oh easy like nailed this I was like let me just tap into memories of times I've been really drunk then then had to was the one who had to do like two escape scenes crawl on the ground after my arm has been severed like you know whatever and then had to record a scream which it blew my mind how hard that was for me to do like getting in the mindset where you would be releasing a blood curdling scream of fear was so difficult for me (laughs) that is really hard I tried to get my daughter to record a scream that was like less less of a blood curdling fear scream and which is the thing because like little kids you know if you tell them to scream they'll do that kind of scream no problem But I was like, no, like you're falling downstairs. Like you're just surprised, (laughs) which is a much harder (laughs) scream to get out of a kid, but like way easier for an adult. Like we could just be like, oh, ah, like, yeah, like you're just (laughs) startled, but kids go straight for that deep, deep fear scream. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I eventually had to be like, okay, everyone go upstairs. I'm going to sit in the basement with the light off alone and like get in the headspace and then ended up coming back upstairs, like actually crying. (laughs) Oh no. that sounds like sounds like you'd be an excellent actor in general then (laughs) maybe this is my this is my debut I suppose I'm like it was fun enough that I'm like I'm willing to do it again (laughs) you know awesome have you so you do a lot of performing as a poet is that pretty much your only live performance stuff that you do yeah so far and I actually never really intended to do that either like came upon the, the blacklisted reading from Amy persistently inviting me knowing that I was a poet and was like come come it's so cool you'll love it uh and was had it so set in my mind that I was not going to get on stage I was like I will come and listen to other people's work soak in the poetry enjoy the company and never perform and then the very first day I was there I was like I have to get up there and read and then got really really into it and now I like absolutely love performing performing poetry so I guess that was my like my gateway drug to performance and I'm teaching myself ukulele and I've been learning some songs. I, I love to sing too. I, I'm, yeah, I've actually done that as well. I performed with my friend Peter Stone in Boston, which was awesome. I love Peter but, Stone. Yeah, Peter's great. And like, I could not say no to that invitation. They were like, do you want to come up to Boston for a weekend and perform at a house show up in the city? And I was like, yes, of course. Like I've never sang in front of people before, but I'll do it. And I performed poems at that too and loved it. So down the line, I would love to do music in some capacity, probably just singing. I'm not good at ukulele at all, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. I always try to like, my, my husband's a musician and I don't want to like be a musician, but I like singing. So like, can I just like sometimes do some stuff with you? Can I just finagle that into my life? Because it is really fun. I I love the adrenaline of obviously like I do 
improv and comedy and stuff so obviously I like the feeling of just potentially making a fool of myself (laughs) in front of crowds no I agree too like I think at least for me, but I assume for most people, you have to, you have to know that that's a potential, right? That like, you're going to get on stage and you might completely embarrass yourself. Like you might mess up horribly or like just say something so stupid while you're up there or or do something dumb. And like, yeah, that is such part of the thrill for me. Like there's such a joy to that, like totally abandoning the, the, the anxiety of like how you're going to look up there and just being like, I'm going to fuck around. Can I swear? I'm sorry. Yeah. No, you can totally (laughs) totally swear okay cool yeah yeah I don't know like like losing the self-consciousness to be able to get on stage is just an adrenaline in its own Mm -hmm. and I kind of think like skilled musicians not to shit on musicians but like if you're decent they have a little bit of a safety net like it's hard to just completely fuck up like if you're Mm -hmm. if you are a good singer and you get up there you know like I've seen bands bomb who weren't good, but like, if you know, if you're like a Peter or whoever, who's just like, oh yeah, like I've been playing shit long enough that like, it's not going to go terribly. Right. Then that's, you know, not, I don't want to call it a safety net, but it's like, it's a little bit more secure. Like they're used to just like, they're going to play something and then everyone's going to clap. But like, when you get on stage to do a poem or like to act or do improv, like you can really just like, People could not clap or not laugh. Like you could not do well. <laughs> oh, oh, definitely. Yeah. And there, I think there's something about it too, where once you're established enough, like as a musician, people are usually buying tickets because they like you already, you know, they're coming to see you. Whereas yeah, with improv or, or poetry open mic, like you don't really know what you're going to get. And even that, like, I've been putting little house shows on with local artists and even that, like, I don't know what I'm going to get with the artists I book sometimes and the audience doesn't know what to expect. So the audience might just hate it. <laughs> like, <laughs> they've, they've come because they're like, yeah, I like poems or like, I like comedy. But then if it's, if you do bomb on stage, then they might just be like, yeah, you sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to make it out to one of your house shows. Are you, yeah. you said right now you're at your parents. Is that like a, you're staying there or you're just doing talking to me now from there? Um, just just talking to you from here. Yeah, I took a little weekend. My parents live in Boiling Springs, which is just like the cutest, quaintest little town ever. It's on the AT. There's a lake out front. So yeah, I'm sort of just here to like enjoy the fall weather and have my mom cook me dinner for the weekend. That's lovely. <laughs> which has been really great. Um, Boiling yeah, Springs I just, is so pretty. This is like the Shire. Like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, it is. And I, I feel lucky that 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 charm was not lost on me having grown up here. Like I felt like I was growing up in like a cute little fairy tale town. I guess because of how many tourists we get here that are constantly saying that. Like, what an enchanting place to be. And I'm like, you're right. Like growing up just with little stars in my eyes all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually lifeguarded at that pool. That was my my high school job and on college breaks too. And like, oh my God, what fun, those water slides. Yeah, it's a really children running around. <laughs> that sounds like an intense job. My kids had an incident there this summer where they're like, "Did did anyone tell you that somebody died today?" And I was like, "What?" <gasps> and I don't think somebody actually died, but there was a, a situation with an adult who was like falling in the pool and like having a head wound. And I was like, "Oh wow, I guess a fun lifeguarding job probably gets pretty serious." It does. Yeah, I so I worked there. I think like probably for seven summers at least. And 
only only one year was there a bad incident and it was yeah an adult who was just there and he I think either had like a stroke or a heart attack but while he was just sunning on a raft so no one knew that anything had happened to him until they called a safety check and evacuated the pool and he didn't get out and they knew him I don't remember his name but they're yelling his name to him and he didn't respond and they're like oh no and he ended up being fine like they pulled him out you know got it taken care of but I was like wow like that would have just slipped right under the radar because you think this guy's just asleep on a raft when really like he's suffered some sort of like cardiac arrest or whatever. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I had to drag a kid out only one time that was actually scary. Lots of like small goofy saves where a kid just like goes down the slide and can't handle it. But there was one time when I pulled a kid out of a really crowded pool and he was like slumped on my shoulder. And as I'm swimming him out, I was like, this might be a dead body. And oh. luckily he wasn't, he had just swallowed a bunch of water and, you know, wasn't, you wasn't currently CPR? breathing, but was quickly breathing once we put him on the concrete and he like puked up some water, but oh, horrifying. And then I, then I definitely like took less lifeguarding shifts and hung out in the snack bar after that. <laughs> <laughs> Solid like, Let choice. Me flip burgers for a while. Cause I don't want a, a dead child on my record. <laughs> <laughs> so from Boiling Springs at some point, uh, I've, this is an awkward transition, but um, you were in Los Angeles at some point based on the poem that we published this week, but I wanted to talk to you about that, especially since, as you said, you're not, you haven't been into performing arts. So it's always fun to see what brings people out there. Yeah. Um, so I only spent a brief amount of time in LA. I have an aunt and uncle that live out there. I guess they're technically my mom's cousins. So whatever that connection is but we all grew up together my my extended family has always been really close so I've been close with Jackie for a long time and yeah got invited out to dog sit for maybe like a month and a half and was alone in their house in LA they live in Highland Park this like adorable little neighborhood and I fell completely in love with LA and still sometimes flirt with the idea that I'm just gonna abandon everything in Central PA and get go out there again yeah because I wasn't there super long but loved it and then and then took several vacations back out there um in the poem that I that you published uh that was a time that I took my boyfriend at the time and then pretty soon after that ex out there yeah to show him why I liked it so much it's yeah. kind of like the theme I asked about it because I feel like Los Angeles probably because uh the podcast coming out this week is with the filmmaker and then we published that poem it just feels like Los Angeles is like the theme of the month here <laughs> <laughs> I love that. People have such mixed feelings about LA in what in my conversations I've had. Like sometimes when I say, oh, I love LA, people have this visceral reaction where they're like, oh, LA, how do you like that place? Like, oh, it's so fake. And they just shit on it. And in, in the time that I spent there, which again was brief, maybe it'd be different if I lived there. I find it to be such a like energized just like literally and and emotionally and and creatively like bright sunshiny place where you really can make anything happen there and so much is created there I'm like oh how can you not love it oh yeah Yeah. (laughs) I (laughs) I hated it when I lived there but I yeah but I do think that like now if I were to live there I would have a much better time I would probably live in a different part of the city like, I think I would have done a lot better out there if I had lived, like, probably, like, East LA, Silver Lake, or something like that. Sure. How how long were you out there? For about a year. Okay. 
Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I was doing a pretty depressing job. So that didn't help because I was like <laughs> working in a middle school in like one of those like, oh, like, let's try to help an underserved middle school sort of situations. Mm. And that's like, that's, that's like a, that's a juxtaposition to be working in like in an impoverished environment in like Los Angeles, which is just such an opulent place. Like, oh, like, oh, definitely so rich and so poor like it's, <laughs> it's just like such a microcosm of everything yeah I definitely have the self-awareness to realize that I was out there vacationing with disposable income working remote but like barely and yeah so my experience is definitely colored in, in that light of like being able to be among the opulence and just like lavish <laughs> and you know I was eating like going out and getting fresh oysters whenever I wanted and like oh is that a streetcar taco yes I want it let me yeah. go to this dinner and totally living that like LA life as if I was a movie star yeah when people came to visit me it was awesome we'd be like all right like, <laughs> here's this bar yeah. that I always go to that you need a password to get into and here's mm-hmm. here let's go like check out the cemetery at Hollywood forever and just walk around looking at dead famous people <laughs> drive around Beverly Hills (laughs) yeah I've had like some of the best food out there ever like hiked Griffith Park and like you always see somebody famous like it's so fun it's fun when it's fun but yeah so work-wise I know you're current you're you're a mason yes I am yeah you're the brick chick on Instagram if if anyone out there is uh following (laughs) following that (laughs) <laughs> I don't post on there enough but whatever I think it's it's, it's badass just the idea of you just like being in charge of a crew of dudes like uh, you have one poem about it that's just like super like sounds like you're a boss it's pretty cool. <laughs> I yeah yeah I am and I've been doing that job for a year now but masonry for two years and I think I've finally settled into that role and being like yeah I'm a badass bitch but also like I know my stuff. I know masonry. I know what needs to get done. I feel so confident going into a job, like doing estimates, giving the orders and doing the work. But it was an uphill battle. Like at at the beginnings of it was so much just me, not, not even feeling like I had to, but truly having to prove myself to these men who are less experienced than me, often younger than me, um, just because they didn't, didn't want me to be good at it, you know? didn't want to believe that a woman could do the job that they were doing. So it was so much of that battle. But now finally I'm like, all right, respect has been established. The hierarchy has been established and they've accepted me as their, as their masonry overlord. (laughs) (laughs) What led you to masonry? Uh, Like delightful accident during COVID, I suppose. Everything shut down. I was serving at the time, so obviously was laid off because it was, well, you know, temporarily laid off because it was shut down, but we had no idea when that would open again. And my landlord was like, if you want work and, and, you know, while you're waiting for restaurants to open, do you want to come learn restoration work? He was flipping houses. And so I started doing that. So I've actually also been trained in like everything when it comes to renovation work, done a little bit of tiling, drywall, electric, plumbing everything short of framing pretty much I've, I've done a little of and then he had me start repointing properties for him and I just fell in love with it um, and now I work for a different company that's only masonry but 
that was my in. So when the restaurant was like, do you want to come back? I was like, I actually absolutely don't want to come back. I'm a Mason now. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. I want to have you come to my house. Just, oh, <laughs> just look to. at it and yeah. tell, tell me how many thousands of dollars I need to spend. <laughs> yeah. I have a, yeah. my house was built. We just bought it last year and it was built in 1900. So it's just like, God only knows what's going on here. Oh yeah. Those are the most fun projects. That That's what I love the most. Like when we're in the city, we do a lot of historical properties, obviously that are, that are so old and sometimes they are built in like the strangest ways or, or really bad patch jobs have been done, done on them throughout the decades that we're then undoing and fixing the right way, but also hoping that the whole building doesn't fall on us in the, in the meantime, <laughs> it's like so fun fitting, fitting our fresh work into this old yeah historical thing and restoring it so good so yeah I'll look at your house for sure (laughs) our basement is like still like dirt like just a big Mm. dirt pile situation nice uh, which I had never seen before and a proper cellar yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's something remarkably I don't think it's haunted or if it is they're like pleasant spirits because I don't get any vibes here have you run into anything like that working in old houses a little bit like I'm thinking of one instance in particular I mean in my life separately I've had plenty of those sorts of encounters especially boiling springs the underground railroad used to come through here and like there are places where you 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 know that like you feel it like you feel this like deep old history and and spirits but job wise there's only there's one job that I that I was doing alone in in a basement and the building was vacant and I just was hearing like the strangest noises and feeling that like weird cold on the back of my neck I was also working like under and behind some like you know heating units or whatever in the basement so I was kind of in a spot where like if I needed to escape, I would have to like army crawl under the pipework that I had un- army crawled under to get in there. Just eerie. And I had to keep going back outside and reminding myself that like, all right, it's daytime on a Tuesday. You're safe. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was, that was a spooky place. That was right in Harrisburg too. So I don't know. Harrisburg's a, it's a place. <laughs> I'm not originally from this area. So I'm like fascinated by it. Uh, is that where you live now, like in the city? Yeah. Yep. We're right in Midtown, which is great. What brought you there? Yeah. After after school, I moved in with my parents just briefly. And then I got a job working for the state and absolutely hated it. It was one of those just like gray, cubicle, drain your soul jobs. Mm-hmm. I remember people kept saying to me, you're so lucky you're getting in early. You can retire early. And I'm watching their like tired soul-sucked bodies like limp around the office I was like no way like I not there's nothing lucky about this so I found another job at a bar actually at HMAC met a bunch of people and was like wow Harrisburg is actually really cool they've got you know this like thriving art community yeah and so that's what brought me there I've been like I've been midtown forever I, I will never live anywhere but midtown in Harrisburg and I but I love it that's awesome did you, when you went to school, were you focused on things like poetry or is this something that came like organically out of just being alive? Ooh. Oh, that's a good question. Um, so yeah, I went to school for English and linguistics. So definitely I've always been a word person and I've wanted, I've wanted to be a writer my whole life as I think is many people's stories, 
but poetry specifically was not not something I thought I would do and in fact I had a college professor it was our like intro to I think it was just an intro to writing class where we did a little bit of everything and when we did the poetry unit he said to me like Emily you're a poet and I was like nah I want to be a novelist like now nah, I want to write memoirs and sort of just like rejected and ignored it for a long time and then kept having professors point out to me how much poetic language and like I was putting into essays and putting into whatever else. Um, and so it sort of was like, it felt inevitable, but it took me a long time to actually start writing poetry. Yeah. Did you, where did you go to school? I went to Gordon College in Massachusetts. Oh, cool. Yeah. I used to be Christian and I'm not. I was going to say, isn't that a religious <laughs> school? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's like one of those things I admit very shameful not very shamefully, but with a bit of shame because Gordon also has a very bad reputation when it comes to LGBTQ issues. They were like actively, while I was in school, they were actively protesting to be added to a petition that would allow them to discriminate against LGBTQ persons in hiring. And it was supposed to, they, they were trying to get on, on this petition with only churches, only other churches, and then a college. They were the, the college on this. And we got bad press and like, the Boston Globe like it was it was awful and we all of us queer people on campus started like an underground gay club we had to book this basement meeting room under a different name and be like all you know secretive about it but oh my gosh what a time to have have gone to gone to Gordon (laughs) (laughs) that must be what do did you grow up in a religious family? Like, yes and no. Um, my family, bo- both of my parents are are Christians still, I think would still say that. But it was never something we really talked about or, or did much with, you know. My mm-hmm. family would go to church sometimes, usually only if my dad was playing in the band. He's a really good guitar player, so he would sometimes play with the, the worship band. And we kind of only went on Sundays when dad was in, in the band, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, like, wasn't super prevalent. But... I, in my like own, which it's, it seems, I, my feelings towards Christianity right now are more negative than I wish they were. So looking back, I want to be like, Emily, you fool. Cause I had the whole, like, come to Jesus. Jesus is going to save my life. Like the born again bullshit and Mm -hmm. dove so far into it and like changed my whole life. Went to Christian college. I, I was going to go to Pratt Institute for writing. Oh, wow giving me all this money they they were like they wanted me to come you know the admissions people were like please please you have talent come and I bailed out last minute like I had walked to the post office with my deposit for Pratt freaked out went home and was like mom I gotta go to Gordon I'm worried that like the devil will get me if I go to New York (laughs) (laughs) so silly and then wound up at this liberal arts Christian college in in north of Boston (laughs) wow I I feel you on that. Like my family was, I mean, my dad was raised Catholic and he was not fucking interested. He hated Catholicism. (laughs) So like we were, but he was like a spiritual person, especially because he was sober. So like a lot of, you know, alcoholics tend to lean towards Mm. um, some sort of higher power situation because you kind of have to for the program. But um, and my mom, you know, she was raised Methodist. I mean, like her, her mom they're like one step from the Amish in in West Virginia mm-hmm. like very old school but we weren't raised super religious and when I was a teenager I just like went 
fucking hard into that born again world for whatever reason and yeah looking back I'm like what an idiot and (laughs) (laughs) not that not to call like I'm not I consider myself a Gnostic Christian now and like I just identify with Christianity in the sense that I think it's because I'm so familiar with that mythology it's one that I can like work with to engage with the divine but I don't think it's like an exclusive avenue to to the divine which is I think where most born against and fundamentalists would would take a lot of issue with me calling myself a Christian because they think that Christianity is only if if you're saying like you must believe in Jesus to save your soul Mm. but in any case I've been there so I know you (laughs) it's it's weird when you go like super religious and that's not even like necessarily what you were brought up with I can't imagine from from a family perspective being like wow where did that come from (laughs) she really went for it (laughs) there's something really tempting about it like they they have a good pitch I think like I I don't know like I just I bumped into the the wrong girl in high school that went to youth group and was like come and and then it it had me hooked but yeah yeah youth group group. (laughs) I honestly to me I'm like they should it's just taking so much advantage of like just the literal structure of the brain at that age and just Mm -hmm. just hijacking kids brainwashing them yeah and something that I was actually writing with another friend of mine the other day who a lot of a lot of her poems end up end up accidentally talking about like purity culture and like how much the church fucked her up when she was young and that that problem has been yeah is so poignant and like looking back on it oh my gosh like they yeah they get you at the wrong time and they try to teach you these like really bad things and impose guilt and shame upon you before you've even done a single thing wrong and you're just a little kid trying to figure it out in the world yeah especially like obviously you've already like mentioned the group so hopefully this isn't inappropriate to say, but especially if you're coming at it, like from a queer perspective where you have so much shame and guilt around who you are and your sexuality, that's like culturally imposed to Mm -hmm. have, you know, it's a vulnerable spot to be in. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh my, yeah. I'm I'm glad that I've made it out, you know? (laughs) Yeah. For sure. Um, what kind of linguistics did you focus on? Yeah, so honestly, that's kind of like a, an area of disappointment in college for me was that our linguistics program program was extremely underdeveloped. Like we pretty much took one one class that covered like each section of linguistics. So there was like a semantics class, pragmatics class, like sociolinguistics, just kind of one of each of them. Like a there's a syntax class. So it was it was interesting to to be thinking about language from from that framework rather than the English background I had otherwise. But all in all, it wasn't very in depth. There's definitely a lot from from those courses though that that I think have has just like strengthened my my writing because I'm I'm thinking about language in a little bit different way that I think I wouldn't had I not done that. But yeah, I don't know if that made sense. <laughs> No, that does make sense. Yeah. I, I focused in linguistics within anthropology in college and we similarly did not have like a very developed, like I had to do like a self, whatever it's called when you kind of just make 
a self-guided course up oh yeah with like my advisor who had studied linguistics which was cool like that but that was like sociolinguistics because the rest of our linguistics classes were very much geared towards people who were going into speech therapy so it's cool like you learned about like phonemes and all that stuff but like it wasn't it wasn't like driving towards the sort of linguistic analysis of like culture and how how it kind of shapes the way that we think yeah, that was true of my program too. Now that you say that, we had a lot of elementary ed majors that that linguistics classes would count towards their major. So they they were there for very different reasons and and speech path majors too. But it yeah, it one of the like benefits and curses I think of having that linguistics experience is I I will like hyper analyze the way that someone's phrased something and think like, oh, you added this word or like you said it this way rather than this way. And that reveals to me that subconsciously you're thinking this thing. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, but but it's helpful when you're writing, especially when you're writing like like dialogue to think about those things, you know, what what's in the back of this person's head, this character's head that might make that phrase come out a different way or like are they the type to interrupt somebody or like are they misinterpreting this and why and playing with language is just so fun (laughs) yeah absolutely what's your favorite type of do you go into a poem in in the sense of playing with language or sorry this is like such a leading pointed question what's your approach to writing a poem (laughs) is it like language first or feelings first or whatever no, it's a good, it's a good question. I think, I think both and different things, different times. I am, I'm much more so the type of writer that will be like moved by an emotion or experience or just a story that I want to tell first. And then we'll like put the, the literary elements onto it. And yeah, I think the, when it comes to things like sound, like, and I don't use a lot of rhyme, but just maybe internal rhyme or whatever. Those sorts of things come out kind of naturally. I think that I've developed the voice enough that those will like happen as I'm writing that part. But I definitely don't go into it trying to to play with some type, you know, to play with language. Usually it's like an emotional drive for sure. Do you revise a lot? Yeah, I'm a really, really heavy reviser. It That's actually like a joke that will come up. That, that we'll joke about together at like writers group and blacklisted like amongst these poets because there are some people that come that are that it will just are die hard like I never edit you know it comes out nearly perfect and I change one or two things and I'm like well good for you dude because I <laughs> will tear the thing apart well maybe sometimes I save like one stanza and I'm like it's a different poem now you know or I just rearrange the whole thing or I add huge sections and then chop the same section right back out again. Like I cannot, I cannot let a poem rest. Even things that I consider finished, I find myself going back and, and nitpicking and touching up and whatever. Yeah, I'm. Just, I love editing. Yeah, I have that conversation a lot. I do think there's like value to what comes out first, but like one thing, I'm the biggest thing I probably learned from grad school was like you could always stand to revise <laughs> and I think there's like a, there's a thickness a thick skin that you get from being critiqued and like taking those critiques seriously and being like oh like I can improve this work that you don't necessarily get if you're just kind of like 
an independent poet on your own who has not engaged with writing groups or schooling mm-hmm. or whatever yeah it's interesting because like it's it's humbling and I almost when you said that when you said some people are like oh my poems just come out perfectly and I'm like oh like that's that's a that's a shell that you've got on they like <laughs> like a it's definitely not true for sure of anyone no offense to whoever says that <laughs> I know I know I, like, I don't want to offend people if they listen to this they'll be like is that me <laughs> like yeah <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, like it's writing and like really there obviously like it's a fine line because there's there's gatekeepers too and you don't want to be like supportive of that. But Mm -hmm. there's a fine line between like gatekeeping and like the important like refining fire of being rejected or being told like this could be better or like this is what's really great about this and could you draw that through? Like that's what that's how I like to help people if I'm ever giving feedback I mean if something's just like super atrocious I might be like I really don't like that line (laughs) but but in general I try to be like this is what's great like make the rest more like this (laughs) right yeah so yeah obviously so the I have the writers group that we we meet weekly and it's all it's all critique like someone brings a piece and if you bring the piece you're here for feedback and everyone knows that and that's something we talk about kind of everything you've been saying but yeah to to give your feedback with with a why, not to just say, I didn't like this, but like, why didn't you like it? Because that's really enlightening too. And maybe, you know, maybe maybe the person who may, would have said, no, I love that line, I'm keeping it. When they hear why you think it doesn't work, then they're, they'll be a little, they'll lighten their grip a little bit, can release their darling a bit and be like, okay, that needs another look. And at the end of the day, feedback is, your your goal as a critiquer is to help pull out what the author was aiming for anyways so to like tell them I love that and why and more of it then it just helps them like tease that out yeah where Um, did your group come from honestly that's also kind of been like a lovely COVID gift I I always feel I feel guilty sometimes reflecting on on my quarantine time and having it be like exactly what I needed in my life because I know that for other people it was really hard and like I don't want to at all gloss over that like people died and people were sick and people experienced a lot of a lot of horrible things during this time but I was lucky to have like it be such a regenerative period a break for me and writers group came from that like I finally was having time to start writing taking my taking my writing seriously prioritizing it like was unemployed briefly and even when I did my construction job initially could kind of work whenever so had free time was writing was lucky to have found a couple of friends who also were writers and we were like we need to do this like we need to get this group together and keep these writing flames going and it, it just started like that the yeah the first night we we met we were being being somewhat uh, a quarantine protocol, we weren't as safe as we should have been, and I will openly say that. But we sat outside, and we sat on my roof of my old apartment building with like five or six of us, and ended up staying up till like four in the morning, drinking wine, talking about writing, and we were like, "This is we needed this," and it's been going for two years now. We've met pretty much every single week for for two years on Monday. That's yeah. so great. I want to come to that. Oh, come. Everyone's welcome. I, I say that all the time on Facebook and all the time in person when I see anyone else who's a writer. And 
people are still unfortunately like shy to come sometimes. Not that I'm assuming that that's you, your case. I know you're also busy, like, but I want everyone to come. Yeah. <laughs> well, I bet it's, it's hard, like with that shell. I mean, I think creative stuff, you know, it's so often from the heart and so precious mm. that it's, it can be like very intimidating to put it in front of people, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've been open book kind of human. And I've come to the realization as of late that I think I'm abnormal in that sense. Mm-hmm. To me, like, I will tell anybody anything, like someone off the street could ask me the most personal question ever. They could be like, how's your sex life? And I'll be like, oh, let me tell you, you know, like, <laughs> I no, probably to a fault. I'm an, I'm an oversharer and an open book. So I've, I've always been the one who's first to bring whatever vulnerable thing I've been writing which I think has been sort of helpful like in our group forming and people feeling comfortable bringing things there's never an obligation that if somebody comes they're going to share but usually people people will eventually like and often their first time will we'll come in saying like oh I don't know if I'll read and then hear me and the rest of the people that that have been coming for a while reading poems about the like the deepest most sensitive topics and truly like bearing their souls and then the new person's like oh wow if they're doing this like sure I can bring this too so that's been really cool to see too actually I was really impressed by that at the reading that you hosted at elementary last week or two weeks ago so mm-hmm. that was last week oh my gosh time was that last week wow. <laughs> <laughs> I was just amazed by like the openness and the warmth of that group of people, uh, especially like watching the open mic, because you saw people like really bear their, I actually like unexpectedly, like the, the, the person who read like did give a, a trigger warning. So it was my own like lack of foresight to, to have, to, to have listened to the whole thing. But like, I ended up just like, leaving really abruptly because I had an unexpected like extreme anxiety reaction to something someone read but it was so beautiful and so like Mm -hmm. open and just I was just really impressed by the the community that you created in that audience that was just like so willing to like go there and support whatever people were sharing in the open mic yeah me me too and like I yeah, I feel so grateful for that. And I have to give like credit where credit's due. I uh, learned and absorbed a lot of that through attending the, the blacklisted readings, which I now am like grateful to co-host, but Amy runs that reading and she, like she's, she developed that a space like that too, where yeah, people are just so comfortable and like, you know, that you can share anything and And you can share anything, whether it's like topic wise or like quality wise, like people bring poems that are so unpolished and never, never feel bad to share them. And people bring things that are masterpieces and can share those too. And it's just like wonderful acceptance where it doesn't feel like you have to come and be performing this piece you've practiced and you're, you're going to be perfect on stage and the, the piece is perfect. And yeah, I think we're so lucky to have, have those spaces here. I hear from friends who live in like Philly and places like that, that readings there often are much more of a show. Like you go prepared, you know what piece you're going to perform, you perform the piece and people applaud like they're at a concert and there's, people don't usually talk about the stuff off stage. Again, this is like mostly hearsay. I've been to a few readings that feel that way, but there's this sense of like, oh, we're here to 
here to perform and there's not the same sort of like community and and digging into our shit together <laughs> that we get to do mm-hmm. in, in our small readings in Harrisburg yeah yeah that even even the featured readers which I felt like very lucky to be a part of but it was cool because you Tyler checked there it's like this is the first time that they're reading in that capacity and then uh people like Maria and Rick who are just like you know after watching them that was like you know a master class in, <laughs> in how, how to be a poet I was like okay so note to self 15 oh, more years or so and maybe I'll be like a halfway decent reader <laughs> that was amazing <laughs> It's a work in progress. Yeah, I, oh, I was wowed by their performances too. And I feel very comfortable on stage performing poetry, but still there, there are still nights where like, I get up there feeling like I'm going to do great and then get all of those, like my, you know, I feel flushed. Like I'm just like so nervous out of the blue and like, don't do a good reading of my own pieces. It takes so much time. It's nerve wracking every time now still, even when it's, it isn't at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> I think that I'm not nervous and then like I am. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. I'm like I've it's got funny this. To say, like then... saying about like 15 years later. I love that. I was actually just reflecting earlier about like feeling grateful that I've been patient with myself and the creative processes and I once I started writing seriously, I was seeing all my friends who are my age who are and I'm 27, like I'm I'm young. And I see my friends my age who are starting businesses and like doing the damn thing and getting all the promotions and doing all this. And I was like, oh my gosh, now that I've decided that I want, I really do want to pursue writing in this way. Like, do I need to get published right away and like make a book and do all that? And was like, no, that's not me, you know? And I'm letting myself pace myself. And if I'm, yeah, if it's 10 years from now and then I'm there, that's great. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I don't want to rush the process. I'm just enjoying it basking in it I I bought a book from Maria there and she signed it like she said something about like to the young writers shaking up the scene or whatever and it was funny because I thought to myself like well I'm 35 and I've been working away at this for like 15 years <laughs> so, yeah. so if I'm still just qualifying as like a fresh face <laughs> It's oh going to be a while it. before I'm like, uh, yeah, I, I like that acceptance that you have because I don't know, I guess at some point, you know, time just starts passing and you're like, oh shit, like this has been a long time that I've been doing this, but, um, mm-hmm. but the longer I do it, the more accepting I am of like, I'm like, eh, a lot of people, especially in writing, like it's kind of the opposite of other art forms, like actors and musicians it's pretty rare to get a career after the age of like 30 to just like oh yeah (laughs) like it's 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 a young person's game whereas writing it's like most people aren't getting their stuff published until they're in their 30s and 40s yeah yeah and you know there's people that start when they're like 50 and pick it up as like a retirement thing or whatever and then still like can write a bestseller or do whatever they're gonna do yeah, it's a much more accepting, <laughs> accepting art. For, I guess it's because you're not like visually in front of. Maybe that's it. I don't know. It yeah. just seems like it seems like I'm sure there are some actors and musicians. I shouldn't say like, oh, don't bother. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I would never tell anyone like, oh, you're too old. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah. 
No, there's something to that. I actually was just, I was reading like this, I I don't remember what the actual book is called, but it's little essays from writers about like uh, either something that they read that really stuck with them or just some like nugget of writing knowledge. And one of them, I think it was one, an essay by Elizabeth Gilbert. She says in there, like, I don't think a young person can write a poem. And even as an adult, you have to be paying really good attention my gut response was to be so annoyed at her. And I was like, how dare you say that? Like, of course, young people can write poems. But there's, but there is something there. Like the, even just being as young as I am, I look at my writing when I was 18. Oh my God, I'm writing about love. I didn't know anything about love. I didn't understand it at all, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's a beautiful naivety to like that the way that I've, that I've painted love as a, as a young woman, whereas now I know so much more, I've, I have so much more life experience and, you know, and I, I just, I can't even imagine like, what will I be saying 10 years from now? Like how much I've, I will have learned by then and my, my new take on, on existence. It's cool. Yeah. I feel like it's such a challenge to kind of look back at what you've done and like feel good about something from however many years ago and just be like, that was cool because you're just not the same person who wrote it. So it's like this awkward mirror into your form into a former you. Oh yeah. It's like looking back on old journals. <laughs> so much of like, I, I don't really do that kind of journaling anymore, but I used to be like a die. I keep saying die hard. This is not a word I use very often. <laughs> I used to, I used to journal every day was writing down like all my feelings, all my emotions and, looking back at those I I find myself often thinking like what a silly girl (laughs) (laughs) it is hard to hard to see but do you think as a writer like you've is most of your stuff like pretty first person like you are the speaker or do you write a lot envisioning yourself from someone like envisioning another character I I very it's all first person and that's something that I don't always love but haven't yet figured out how to not always be writing from my own perspective you know yeah (laughs) yeah even like I am I'm working on a novel right now which nobody get excited it's going to be years I'm I'm such such a slow process for me but even in that like my main character is it's very much me it's like very much Emily right out out of college fumbling around in the world like it's so easy to write her character because it's me so yeah I, I do that I do that a lot yeah, that's a lot of my fiction too. It's very, I wrote a novel during COVID and it's just like, mm, is this a novel? It is, it is a novel, but the main character is not, not much of a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. From, from that, you write about a lot of like really tough topics. Like you write about abuse and I mean, you have a very strong feminist perspective, which I love I think that's like the, one of the first things that drew me to your writing like hearing you read and that's just a compliment that's not a question <laughs> thanks no actually, <laughs> it was very funny reading like the the beautiful blip that you wrote uh, before the poems that you published in Raven Rabbit Ram because I was like uh I was like oh you Christina described my writing better than I could have and like the, <laughs> I think there was a phrase like empowered feminism and I was like wow like I I hadn't even really been thinking about it that way like obviously I would call myself a feminist but I don't even know if I would have been like oh yes I'm writing feminist pieces and then 
only sort of like really absorbed that from other people saying that to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. I feel like very, I don't know. Like I find like if I'm doing comedy or I'm joking around with my friends, like I certainly have the capacity to be very sexual, but like the sexuality in your poems is something that I'm like, Oh, like I've, it makes me be like, you need to like, look at yourself and see why you're so for lack of a better word, like why I feel so prudish where I'm like, I could never, like I could never write that. <laughs> like it is just so badass, And I'm just like, Oh, wow. What's, I don't know. It like, it holds a mirror up to, I feel like power and, uh, like those sort of dynamics, not just interpersonally, but like also in society. Mm, yeah. Thank you. That's, that's a wonderful compliment. I think I definitely owe credit to that from uh, so, some like poets that I've read, like I'm thinking specifically of Sharon Old. She has a lot of pieces that just do not flinch away from talking about like the female body and like the bodily experience and sex in ways that when I first read some of her pieces I was like whoa like it like took me back a little like the kind of thing where you think you're not supposed to you shouldn't be looking you know Mm -hmm. but here it is in a poem like literally just like legs spread like right here to read but she also like is digging into the in the human experience and her pieces are valuable right like there's not they're not just um, like sexual for the for the shock factor or for the, for the sake of doing it. They're they have such content to them, and I I think here, like reading her pieces and there there are some other blacklisted poets that that do that too. That I was like I can do that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it does feel really empowering. I mean, these are the things that I'm experiencing and are on my mind anyways, and it's like that's what you want to write about, right? Yeah. Like I said, I'm an oversharer. I don't want to hide anything, <laughs> not even in my poems. <laughs> well, they, I mean, they come across wonderfully. Now I'm going to give myself a homework assignment to write a sexy poem. That's the other thing that I want to, I'm like, oh, I need to get to your writer's group because I miss that sort of feedback of school. Like when it's like, oh, like this, I know this could be a lot better, but I'm not coming up with any ideas as to how to make it better. I, I need somebody else to look at it. So yeah, for sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that's been like world changing in my writing process for me is having getting eyes on pieces and like weekly, like, you know, I'm, I can bring new new stuff that's so fresh to me that like, like, like you were saying before, kind of when it first comes out, I look at it being like, it's done. <laughs> and I think like, the thing came out, there's no other way I could say it. This is exactly how I experienced it. I got all the emotional stuff in here, whatever. Um, but then the other eyes are so helpful for clarifying and strengthening and because because that's something we touch on in group a lot too is like yes poems are especially poems but but other writing too is is deeply personal you're trying to capture some thought or emotion or feeling that you wanted to portray but if it stays deeply personal and is not ever tailored towards your intended audience then like then it's not done especially it's not done if you want to share it sometimes some some people in my group will say things like well, you just, you just can't get it because you weren't me or like, you, you know, like you don't know how I was feeling when I wrote it. And my response is usually, well, if I, as your audience, don't know how you're feeling when you wrote it, then like there's work to be done there. Like, don't you want me to feel what you felt? And making those editing tweaks, I think is what makes a piece so strong. Oh, uh, yeah. I used to get 
too deep as a comment a lot and I'm like oh that's not you think that that's a compliment or something that people are like oh she's too deep but don't understand I'm like all you're saying <laughs> all you're saying is that it's incomprehensible <laughs> right <laughs> that's right, not right. a compliment that means I need to go back to the drawing board <laughs> yeah yep yeah I've I've heard some some people be like I like that my piece is ambiguous and there are times where ambiguity is really wonderful when it's crafted correctly, but there's other times where I'm like, no, that's just lack of clarity. Like, we just don't know what you're saying. You're not being cleverly ambiguous or whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> you haven't actually said what you think you, you're saying yet. Yeah, that's, uh, it's nice to hear someone get real like that because people are so, I don't want to say like, so nice, like you should be nice about it when you're critiquing people, but of I course. feel like, yeah, yeah people are, Oh my gosh. Um, I hope I'm not like about to sound like uh like Republican or something. <laughs> <laughs> People are like so invested in like safe space sort of vibe where it's like I feel like sometimes we're all like kind of afraid to be straightforward about like improvements. Stuff like that. <laughs> Which yeah, I get no, I, because I hear like, exactly what you're saying. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a touchy line. Um, because obviously we're not I'm not here to like hurt somebody's feelings like there's in no way do I ever want to you know come at them in a way that's going to make them feel like oh I'm never going to share again because she didn't like my piece or whatever um and there there's a lot of I think trust involved when you when you do want when you want constructive feedback and whether this is like life or or like poetry you know like if you're seeking counsel for a decision in your life you want someone that's going to tell you the truth not someone that's going to say oh you'll be fine oh you're doing everything great when like you aren't doing everything great and the same applies to to writing when you're revising it you I my that's my least favorite thing I don't want someone to just say oh we loved it I'm like no tell me what can be better but you have to trust that the people that you're workshopping with you know care enough that they that they actually want to help your piece or whatever or aren't just going to be be mean to you yeah (laughs) and that they have a good a good eye like a good sense of, a good eye. of poetry on that note you mentioned Sharon Olds but like who what has developed your sense of like poetic aesthetic yeah um I was like nervous you were gonna ask me this question because I think I'm wildly underread. like I am you oh know? me too me too so okay. don't don't worry Great. I'm not gonna like <laughs> get really smart here (laughs) yeah I I mean my my answer that like probably makes it clear that I don't read enough books is honestly it's like the other people it's the because I have the blacklisted is like huge like sometimes we get like 60 people that come out you know but there's there's such a variety of poets that get on stage um and then our writers group also is like a great variety and most of my inspiration and like things I've gleaned comes from that like I at writers group and the 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 readings at HMAC I'm constantly scribbling in my notebook like a line that somebody said or something I noticed that they're doing and thinking like oh I want to try that and then I I like subscribe to a couple journals that I that I'll read like I really like rattle subscribe to poetry I also I (laughs) one time when I was like really this is such a whatever I was like pretty tipsy and I'm laying in bed and I saw an Instagram ad for like the New Yorker a subscription for cheap and I did it (laughs) um so then I then I woke up with the email that was like congrats on your subscription to the New Yorker and I was like what did I do last night (laughs) um but so now it's like the nerdiest drunk purchase (laughs) 
Yeah. And the funniest thing is I've done that twice. <laughs> like I did it years ago and again, woke up to like the email that was like, you have the New Yorker now. And I was like, damn, what did I do? And then did it again, like somewhat recently, but, but I'll pop on and read poems on there. Yeah. So there's not anyone that I'm, I'm always, that's something like if, if you're listening and you want to message me your favorite poets, do it. Cause I'm always looking for suggestions of who to check out. I get really into, I'll just like read one book of poetry over and over. Yeah. And, uh, that's not necessarily useful for broadening my horizons. Who would that poet be for you? Uh, the one that I read, like literally just like every year restarting it. It's like, I have like 365 roomy poems so, so it's no just way. like a year it's a yearly just like roomy a day thing so I read roomy a lot <laughs> nice <laughs> which is kind of funny because like it's really like really I'm reading Coleman Barks like the translator you know and mm-hmm. roomy himself I'm pretty sure just spoke and like his acolytes wrote his stuff down so it's like Obviously, he's one of the most famous poets of, like, all of history, but he also wasn't, to my knowledge, usually actually writing things down, and it was a very different language than what we're reading it in now, so it's like, I don't know, that's just a very, (laughs) it's a very interesting process to think about, and then I love Rilke, and that's one that I read, I'll go back to Rilke a lot, and then I, similar to you, like, I'll, a lot of what I read poetry-wise is people that I see like if I can if I see you out and you have a book like I'm probably gonna buy the book and I'm gonna read that like Sean Hanrahan was at the pride reading I've gone through his books Mm -hmm. lately and I just got Maria Chow's newest book so that's one that I've been reading so a lot more local poets than anything I would say yeah yeah me too definitely I I I would second that I also just pick up books at at readings that I go to because Partially because, yeah, I want to hear more of their stuff. And also because I hope that might happen to me someday, you know? I'm like, I want to buy everyone's books locally and then hope that they'll return the favor whenever I have a book to put on the shelf. Do you submit a lot of places currently? Do you ever, like, just send, like, a poem out or? No, and I should. And it's it's not even because I'm afraid of rejection. It's, I get, like... I get really caught up in trying to pick the publications I would want to send work to. And I, I think maybe like I have a bigger ego than I wish I had sometimes. Cause I'll, I'll find a publication. Then I'll start reading. And I'll be like, oh, I don't really like their other poems. Like I don't want to get published here. And then I'm like picky again. So it results in me spending a ton of hours and hours on submittable and picking like two publications to send to when really <laughs> I should just be like blasting them all everywhere um that's that's in again with the me taking my time like that's I'm looking at winter expecting a little more isolation in my room and being at home more when the weather gets bad and that that's going to be a get down get nitty-gritty with the submitting get stuff out there that'll be cool I look forward to seeing where you go and that'll make me I'll think about that when I do see you published that it was like a very specific and curated choice that you end up where you end up (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if that's the wisest way to go about it. Like being, being a a truly both like young in age and also in how long I've been seriously writing. Like, I don't know that that's the wisest approach to be picky this early, but so maybe I'll snap out of it. Who knows? (laughs) For what it's worth, in my experience, submitting is like 90% rejection, but if you're submitting to 
publications like people hate getting submissions that does not fit their right vibe so if you're doing that work for them instead of just blasting the whole world with everything you write then you're at least submitting the places where you have a higher chance of being the right fit for them yeah yeah so true but simultaneously even then I mean there's just so so much rejection so on that if you're trying really hard to get if you're in a push to get a few things published so that it so you can use that to like support a proposal for a chat book or something like that, where you're like, Hey, look, I've been published here, here, and here. So like you should publish my book in that case, then I'd probably get less selective, but what do I know? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't, I don't know either. <laughs> yeah. That, that's an area that the, the like more professional side, I suppose, of pursuing writing is one that I like simultaneously recognize my lack of knowledge in and and need to take more seriously and then also kind of like scoff at (laughs) and be like you're really telling me that even if my work is is great and you love it if I don't have these little boxes checked you won't want to publish me and like it seems so silly to me so that I have a mind mindset shift to make there you know because I I don't want to self-publish um and again I'm hoping that the novel gets done and at I I don't want to self-publish a novel. I would love to like get it, get it published. And that is going to require me to have a resume that has some, some stuff on it, <laughs> has a little bit of meat. So yeah, totally. it can be hard. Cause like, I don't want to be snobby. Like that's not who I want to be as a person, but like I was at a podcast thing and these people were advertising self-publishing books and they were like, yeah, you can turn your podcast into a book. Like you can be a writer. It's not hard at all. And I'm like, fuck you. (laughs) Fuck you. Like some of us went to school for this. Like, Like, I was like, do not talk to me. I promise you, I don't want to talk to you. And it's not like I'm saying there's anything necessarily bad about self-publishing. Like if you just want to put your stuff out there, then like put your stuff out there that's fine but like I was just like so offended at this idea that it's just like writing's easy anyone can write a book like no you fucking can't like do you know how long (laughs) people spend on this like to just take like you wouldn't say that like anyone can be a doctor or like the people who can are idiots (laughs) right like I'm not comparing writing books to being a doctor in terms of difficult like obviously there's a lot of specific knowledge in being a doctor but like you wouldn't say that about most professions like you wouldn't just be like oh just like fucking make a transcript out of that conversation you had and then you wrote a book like no you didn't write a book you fucking transcribe a conversation yeah yeah (laughs) I I think this I hope this is something that other that, that most writers like wrestle with in some way because I yeah, I feel that. I feel that deeply. I would have been so mad too. And I also will get mad sometimes realizing some of the junk that does get published, like, especially when you talk about like fast fiction. And again, I don't want to shit on it. I think that it has, has its place. Like it is a good form of entertainment, great book to take to the beach or whatever. And like, I see that there's value in it, but it can be kind of frustrating to look at these romance novels that the writing's not even good I'm like you didn't even care to develop your characters you've got the flattest characters in here like your plot has a million holes in it but like you're publishing it here it is here it is at like Target you know yeah <laughs> like that can be frustrating but I, yeah I I'm like I could probably do that sure I could probably write a couple shitty books that that are catchy enough or whatever but 
I, I calm myself down and realize like, that's not what I want to do. Like, I want to do something different and you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then everyone's caught in that cycle of like, well, like people want you to be published to, to get published. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. just at some point you just got to get over the hump where somebody publishes one thing and then you're there, but Oh yeah. It's hard to persuade people to publish someone who's never been published. Yeah. Yeah. I remember after college applying for jobs, it was, it was exactly like that. You know, they're like requirement two to three years of marketing experience. I was like, but how do I get marketing experience? Everyone requires experience. No one's hiring me. (laughs) (laughs) It's infuriating. It's like, how many ways can I prove that I'm capable without having, you know, that line item on my resume done it before well at least with your masonry you've you've crossed that hump so oh my god (laughs) one area of life where you can be like yes I have the experience I'm a badass (laughs) hell yeah you will respect this (laughs) oh and I was like so lucky to not not need any experience to get into it like that's not really the case and and even now, like, as we're looking to expand our company at, at some point, it's like, we're only going to hire Masons. We're only going to hire people that have experience that, like, I lucked my way out of not needing to have and was trained from the, from scratch, you know? Like, when I first started doing renovation work, I had never operated a drill. Like, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing at all. But I had, like, the will and learned it. Yeah, I feel That's- so lucky. That's really cool. I honestly, I imagine like very like old timey apprenticeship. My mind goes to like another century when I think of something like that. I'm like, oh yes, if you're a blacksmith and you have an apprentice, (laughs) they spend years watching you blacksmith or whatever. Yeah, it kind of feels like that. Like I, a lot of people in in masonry will go to go to Votech in high school and then like maybe that will be it or maybe they'll go like do another like one or two year training process or whatever and then take a job at like a big masonry company and and then are back at square one and they end up just mixing mud every single day or they're just bringing the bricks to the actual mason for years they're not actually doing the work despite having the training because that's just how the, the big system works but because I went the other way and you know first worked for like a a smallish company in Harrisburg and now work for a small family business I got to be like I was laying bricks right away you know was instantly doing the actual work and getting hands-on training on all of the actual work right away, doing the same things my boss was doing beside him. It did feel very much like an old school, you know, apprenticeship. Yeah. And I'm super great. And if like, I would recommend that to anyone who wants to get into trades too. And I usually do. I'm like, skip all of the like bullshit school stuff. You don't need a license to do any of this. Like find a company that's willing to take a chance on you and like learn hands-on and you'll learn so quickly and you'll know more than people that went to school sometimes. We have a few guys out of Votech who hadn't hadn't buttered a brick, like just like hadn't done some of the things that are things we do every single day because they just it wasn't part of their curriculum in school. So all right, I've well, two last questions of you. The sure. first is an actual question, and the second is I'm gonna ask you to read one of your poems. So <laughs> I don't want to put you on the spot. Do you have one that you want to read? Ooh. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't really thought about that. Is there one that you want me to read? I don't know. I think you're you're a great reader. So I 
Let's pick one that wasn't in Raven Rabbit Ram so people get the maximum amount of. Okay. What um, about the Oasis one? I bet that sounds cool. Oh, I can read Oasis out loud. Yeah, I like that poem. That's funny. I read that one a long time ago. Well, a long time ago, I mean a couple of years, I guess, but loved it when I wrote it, went through a phase of hating it, and then looked at it again and was like, this is still a good poem. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it a lot. I had a hard time choosing which ones to put in oh thank you that's why I put the burden on you because I was like not gonna pick three (laughs) I don't know but both because both of being like I like all of these but then also being like deeply insecure as I think a lot of writers are and just like full imposter syndrome being like maybe all of my work sucks so like I'm just gonna let her decide (laughs) well yeah it's hard because people submit you know when people submit they send a lot usually and like I'm like aware from an editor perspective. I'm like, I don't want them to think that this is like saying anything negative about the ones that I didn't choose. Like, it's just like, I hope I just never want to, I guess no matter what, like the person on the the other end of, they're always going to be like, well, why didn't this one fit? Or like, why didn't they pick this? Or, uh, or, you know, when you get like just rejected all out where it's just like, Hey, like, thanks for submitting. We're not going to use this. It's like, you, you can't control what's going to go through their mind. But like in my head, I'm always like, I hope they know that this is just like, these are the ones that I thought would go well. <laughs> and not like, oh, these other ones suck. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I do not envy envy your, your task in that. I, in college, a little bit was on what would come and help with selecting pieces for this one of the school publications. And Something that I will comfort myself with when I do get rejections is like we we in that room, just a room of students picking other people's work, where we would get in heated debates sometimes. And like I would be like, you have to publish this piece. Like it's so good. And here's why. And then eventually we'd still get rejected. So I like to imagine that somewhere in a room, someone was fighting for my piece and they still were like, sorry, we've got to say no. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I got a I got a rejection that said that recently. And it was like, I just like we just wanted you to know that like your piece made it to the editorial table and was hotly debated and I was like yes oh I love <laughs> like, that like it was like the best yeah. rejection I've ever gotten I was like oh some, <laughs> somebody was like publish this <laughs> yeah I yep I think my favorite one I got back was was similarly them saying like we're sorry we couldn't accept you but like we really really liked this piece submit again and I was like great they want to hear from me again and they really liked the one even if they didn't take it <laughs> yeah a good feeling. Okay. Uh, This piece is called Oh Oasis. There's sand in my shins and a heart monitor where my hands used to be. I'm seeking a thump thump, any thump thump. I need, I need it. I went and wet my appetite. I shouldn't have. Because now I bite my lips all the time, chew at the corners of my cheeks. I'm trying to pace my desire so it doesn't outrun my sanity. But this desert is dry and hot. These fever dreams are dry and hot. I want, I want it. I'm exhausted from crawling and crying, calling, oh, oasis, oh, oasis, oh. I need to lie on a ribcage alive with animate sound and motion. Feel the little furs of your chest tickle my cheek. The kisses of your lips bless my forehead, wet and warm. But oh, Oasis, when I find you, I know that I will drink you dry in a single gulp just to puke up the love my body isn't fit yet for processing. Ding. (laughs) (laughs) Ding. That was so funny reading that, like performing it to myself in my bedroom, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> that was great. Cool. Thanks. All right. Last question. Saturn. It, well, the podcast is it's always Saturn and Saturn is like the planet in astrology. I mean, based on the mythology of Saturn, where he's like one of the it's it's based on Kronos, right? So he's like the god of time and like boundaries and structure and like finite things. So um not everyone loves him. He's a divisive planet, but <laughs> but I find that it's pretty much always Saturn o'clock in my life. So (laughs) that's the name of the podcast. Um, But yeah. So the question is how, how does, how does that play into your work and your life and, and how do you embrace it or hate it or whatever? Yeah, this is such an interesting question. And like, this was in the questionnaire prior And I still feel equally unprepared to answer this question. Um, I, I find myself to be often, often more than I wish, like entirely chaotic and feel like I'm constantly in flux and like always changing and like always shifting and like just the, the, the flow and the flow and the flow. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know why this is such a hard, a hard question to me. I think like the, I don't know if this is entirely Saturn related or not, but the fact that things just keep happening, that life just keeps happening and things will start and end and start and end. And even though I don't really think time is real in the sense that we experience it, like it, it does just keep plugging along regardless of, of anything else. Like, I guess what I'm really saying is the idea of like, no matter what the fuck is happening today tomorrow's gonna come and next month is gonna come and the next season is gonna come and that I think is really reassuring when life feels wild and when I feel wild that like there's a regularity to the sun rising and setting I don't know if that really answered your question but (laughs) no that was actually that was a beautiful answer and one of the more interesting ones that I've gotten and you know what it really it it speaks to how you your kind of orientation to the pandemic and how quarantine was for you because it sounds like that structure that imposed structure created something for you where you you found new new things in your life yeah yeah definitely I like not to just not to ramble on I don't know how much time we have but um I read the Tao Te Ching like a couple of years ago and it like ruined my life in the best way and like has so deeply informed my philosophy about about everything and the idea that it's all gonna be fine no matter how unfine it feels is one of those like deep reassurances to me wow I wish I had asked that question at the beginning so we could talk you could tell me more about the Tao Te Ching (laughs) (laughs) everyone should read it it's the best (laughs) my cat's actually named after it like a parable in it no way what's what's it saying so her name is fortune um but the the parable is talking about it's like a beautiful story but the summary is basically that nothing that happens is inherently good or bad that good can come out of bad things and bad can come out of good things and that's just sort of the way it is so 
Oh, is it the the horse and the sun and the it is, yeah. (laughs) That's a good one. I've never read the Tao Te Ching, but somebody told me that recently. That's like a a weird synchronicity that that came up twice. Mm And you know, it's interesting. My kids asked me yesterday what fortune meant and they, they were literally just asking in the context of a fortune cookie. And I was like, (laughs) Ooh, fun, deep question. Let's talk about it. And they were like, uh, Oh, I bet bet that's going to pay off great for them in in later in life. Those sorts of deep discussions. (laughs) Hopefully. Oh, I think it will. It's certainly helping with their eye rolling at this point in life. (laughs) I love it. That's a that's an important life skill. A good eye roll that can take you somewhere. <laughs> Too many places for me. I, <laughs> I have like no facial control. Like it's so obvious if I'm <laughs> like oh. my eyes just roll without any consent from my brain. I'm like, oh shit, they can tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. I I have like that the curse the curse and blessing of a very expressive face. <laughs> I'm too easy to read. Well. It works well as a poet. Oh, for sure. I'm sure that works great for you with comedy as well. Yeah. When things are going well, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) When they're not, I probably am like um, giving away my sense of dread. (laughs) (laughs) I, oh, I like, I cherish those little like funny moments in, in performances, especially people that are not not amateur in the in the bad I hope that term doesn't come off badly but like amateur performances where someone will kind of break for a moment and like you you can tell they missed a chord only because their face reacts like I I love that (laughs) we're so human do Um, you have anything you'd like to promote I do so on November 11th I'm hosting a a house show which is open to the public and we have a super awesome poet coming in town Lily Greenberg she's a friend of college from my a friend of mine from college and she just published her debut collection. It's called In the Shape of a Woman. Talk about like powerful feminist pieces that are also deeply heartfelt and nostalgic and just beautiful. Um, so she'll be there performing pieces from her work. And then we also have two local female um, musicians performing too that are like singer-songwriters. It's gonna be like a very delightful folksy night. And then we also do an open mic afterwards. So Everyone is invited to bring instruments, comedy bits, poetry, like anything they want to perform, anything at all. You get five minutes on the mic to just goof around in front of a lot of delightful people. And that's at my house in Midtown. 339 Riley Street, November 11th. November 11th. (laughs) Yeah. All right, cool. Sweet. And you have another reading in January, January 13th, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. On January 13th, there'll be another reading at Elementary with an open mic to follow as well. Oh, off the top of my head, I know Adam Fauci is performing. Ashley, whose last name I cannot pronounce. <laughs> Maybe we can type that somewhere for them. Um, who else is performing? Keith Snow, who's like originally from Philly, but is in the area now. And then I think one or two other features and then an open mic after. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Rad. Well, thank Sweet. you so much for being on our podcast. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. Yeah, I'm I'm excited. <laughs>